The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you live from the Warner Center in Woodland Hills, California. This is the home for Autism Live. It is also the home for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. I'm so excited to be here with you on this Thursday because, you know, we've got a big, big show and there's a lot of stuff that's happening behind the scenes that I'm hoping that I'm going to have a few minutes to talk with you guys about today. But, you know, what takes precedent over that, because I'm sure we'll find time at some point, we want to have as much of a conversation with you as possible. This next two hours, we're going to be with you live, and we want for that conversation to go both ways, right? We would love to hear from you in some of the myriads of ways that we set up for you to both watch the show and to connect with us. So Traven is gonna start showing, he's already showing you because he's that on it, some of the ways that you can connect with us here on the show. While he does that, I will remind you that our homepage is autism-live.com. When you go there, it's a brand new website, all the same things that were there before, plus a bunch more. So when you go to the website, if we're not live, um, you'll just see a website with all the little boxes with the pins that you can see all the videos that we've done, thousands and thousands of hours of videos. Um, but when we're live, up at the top, it will say live and there's a red button. If you, if you, Sometimes it opens automatically on some people's browsers, others it doesn't. Uh, if it doesn't open automatically, then please click on the live and it will pop open. You will see that on the new website, one of the things that will happen that was not there before, and I know it can be annoying, um, but we it, there is a pop-up that comes up, I think it's like five seconds after you're on the page, a pop-up comes up that invites you to subscribe. I want to let you know that that is a real thing. What you're subscribing to is our postcard that comes out uh, every Monday or Tuesday where we let you know who's going to be on the show. We do not spam you. Uh, the only other time that we will contact you through that is if there's some sort of breaking news and we're going to be covering it on the show at a time that we aren't normally live. So that's all that is. Um, and if you'd like to subscribe, you fill it out, and I believe then it never pops up again. Uh, if you don't subscribe, every time you come on the website, it will pop up. Just click the little X and make it go away and say, I don't want that. I, I don't know about you, but I talk to my screen and I go, no, thank you. Go away. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I won't hear it. I won't be personally offended at all. In any case, we still have the chat on that website. It's just infinitely smaller unless you ask it to pop up. It's at the bottom of the page now, and it says chat. And when you click on it, it pops up. You're given a window. You can type and enter, and it, it's, it gives you more characters now than it used to on the old website, which is really wonderful. And by the way, that is the way that you can reach us that is anonymous. 
that I have no idea who you are. It doesn't tell me where in the world. What it does tell me now is which day you wrote it and what time. That still doesn't help me to know what you saw at the time that made you say the thing that you said. So uh, do reference when you, instead of pronouns, when you say, when, when she said this, I was, uh, you know, does she know? I don't know which she you're talking about, right? So try to say, if, you, if we haven't had the lower third up in a while, so you don't know what the name of the person is, say, the, you know, the person who's talking about this, right? Reference it for me so that I know. But you know what I love to do? I love to be able to help you to get to the resources and the support and the inspiration that you need to make this work for you. We know that this community is huge. Parent, teachers, practitioners, doctors, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and most especially the individuals who are on the autism spectrum. We know that it's not one size fits all, and I, from, I gave up mind reading to be an autism mom. <laughs> so don't make me mind read. I'm not good at that, right? But I am uh, a mom of an individual who was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. Proud mom, right? And I am so grateful for what we receive that I always, my mission is to help you to get what you need. May not be what I needed, right? Um, but I'd like to help you to get to those resources that will help you. Uh, you know what I say, we hold hands and si se puede. We can do this. Yes, we can. So uh, let us know. Talk to us. And I apologize. We try to get to as many of the comments as you guys send in. We, we aren't able to get to all of them. Uh, we're doing our level best and, and trying always to do better to get to as many as possible. But if your question or comment does not get responded to, please feel free to write in again. We do notice when there are multiples of something and we try to do better. Um, all right. Uh, having said all of that, because it's Thursday, and I do like to give the disclaimer at the start of the show that we have lots of experts on the show. Moi, not one. Uh, so I, as I said, I'm an autism mom. And I care deeply about what you're going through, but please don't confuse me with an expert. You can confuse me with someone who has an informed opinion. I have been covering autism uh, from a journalistic point of view for over a decade. We're, I think we're in year 11 now. So uh, I do have an informed opinion, but that does not make me an expert. Those two things are vastly different. I'm gonna sneeze. <laughs> that was very funny. And then it just sort of stopped. That was a weird thing. Anyway, um, in any case, we uh, like to start Thursday with something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym, and we try to make sense of what the experts are talking about, right? What does this mean to me? How is, does this help me? Why do I need to know this, right? So today's jargon term, there it is, isn't it pretty? Non-contingent reinforcement. I don't know about you, but like that just hurts my head even now. I'm like, what? What? Um, but you know, the reason why we do the jargon is because it's useful in some way. It is. Uh, it shortens subjects and, uh, that are very specific. So let's take a look at this. First, we'll give you the actual definition, which often we make fun of. Here we go. Non-contingent reinforcement, a procedure in which stimuli, it hurts your head already, doesn't it? With known reinforcing properties are presented on a fixed time or variable time schedule or schedules. Isn't that nice? 
I don't know what that means. Even now, I don't really. A procedure in which stimuli with known reinforcing properties are presented on a fixed time or variable time schedules. I know what non-contingent reinforcement means, but it, this does not help me. So let's go on to our working definition of what the heck is this? Okay. The child or the individual, because a lot of times it's, you know, not necessarily child, is given reinforcement on a schedule, regardless of whether they have demonstrated a behavior or not. Okay, now doesn't that make you go, what? Wait a second. So we have a schedule and we're just going to give uh, a person some sort of treat or some sort of reinforcement on a regular schedule? Why would we do that? Well. Non-contingent reinforcement is often used when attention is the function of the behavior. We talk on the show all the time about how when people are engaging in behavior that we consider challenging, right? It's preventing other things from occurring. Think in a classroom, right? Where you've got a kid who has got all kinds of things going on, like they're, they're throwing spitballs, they're, you know, uh, pulling other people's hair, and that prevents the whole class from learning, right? That's challenging behavior. And there are lots of kinds of challenging behavior. But we look at this, this individual, this student that is doing all of these things, and we do some sort of a functional behavior assessment. Hopefully this is done by an expert, right? Who figures out why. Uh, you know, what's the paycheck that they're getting from this? And what we see a lot of times in the classroom, and I'm an ex-classroom teacher, is, and we see this a lot in our homes, the function of the behavior is found to be attention. And what that means is I'm doing it to get attention. And when I do something for attention, if I'm, you know, I would like positive attention, I would. But if that doesn't seem like it's on the menu, I'm happy to take bad attention. So I don't care how I get it, I need me some attention. This always is hard for us because we think, well, don't they want good attention? Yeah, but attention is attention is attention, right? And if you don't believe me, pick up a tabloid and you will see adults engaging in bad behavior to get attention, right? Okay, so here we are. We've decided that the function is attention. So we're going to try to do something that we're not really going to address the throwing the spitballs because we know that doesn't work. You can go, stop throwing spitballs. Stop throwing those. Stop throwing, right? We're talking to ourselves or a wall. Uh, so we want to try to do something beforehand that prevents the need for the spitball. And we do something called non-contingent reinforcement where we're going to give this individual attention because we found that to be the function and this really works with attention. We're going to give attention on a regular schedule to see if that makes the behavior that's challenging not have to occur at all. And let me tell you something, folks. It's like a magic trick. I, as a teacher, used to think of my students as lovely buckets right? Really nice, lovely buckets that needed to be filled on a regular basis, right? And some kids were bigger buckets where they needed a bunch more attention. Some kids really, you know, small bucket, need only a little bit of attention to get through the day, right? But if you don't fill the big bucket, then you are going to have a problem everywhere, right? So we set up the, we, we take a baseline and go, how long before this child uh, engages in behavior? Let's say that if they go five minutes without getting attention, we get spitballs, right? 
So we say, all right, we're going to set it up that at four minutes, every four minutes, we're going to give this kid some sort of positive attention. And regardless of what else happens, we're on this schedule. And we're going to give that attention every four minutes. Now, we might still get some spitballs somewhere in the middle, but we're going to take data on it. And if we give attention every four minutes, before the spitballs were happening 18 times a day, is it now happening one time a day? That's improvement, right? That's vast improvement. And what we see that over time, if this really truly is the function, and we really do the non-contingent reinforcement, the challenging behavior is no longer needed after a, peri a short period of time, right? We may see, a, a, I don't know, uh, different behaviors in between, but after a short period of time, that behavior goes away. And then what we start to do is very slowly, incrementally, make the, the non-contingent reinforcement go from 4 minutes to 4 minutes and 10 seconds. And then from 4 minutes and 10 seconds to 4 minutes and 15 seconds, right? Like we go slow. And if at any point the spitballs come back, we back it up to the last place it was working. Well, he was holding it 4 minutes and 15 seconds, so we go back to giving attention every 4 minutes and 15 seconds, and, and then we do that for a while, and then we slowly move it you know, to 4 minutes and 18 seconds. When I say incrementally, I'm not kidding, right? Until we can get it to the point where this child can go you know, 3 hours um, before they have to get attention. And then we probably will switch it to a variable thing where it's not all the time. Like sometimes they get it for four, in four minutes, sometimes, which is life, right? Uh, we don't know when we're necessarily going to get attention from the teacher. Now, teachers and parents and other people who have to do this go, what? That's going to, four minutes? I'm trying to teach and every four minutes I have to give attention? Like how am I going to do that? You have to realize that attention can take a millisecond, right? And if every four minutes, and I mean, it's on a schedule. We have teachers who will wear uh, a, a timer that buzzes every four minutes, and then they will look at the child and go, nice job. Or they will smile at the child or, or simply put their hand on their desk um, because that's a form of attention, right? And it, it just takes, it takes planning and it takes forethought but what they find very quickly is, oh, man, when I do that, I get so much more done. I get the lesson done, and I'm not having to stop and, you know, redirect and put, you know, separate desks and whatever. I get so much more teaching done. And by the way, this works in other arenas, too, besides teaching. It works in the home. Uh, any parent who has ever noticed the phenomenon that when you get on the phone and that's when your child starts doing every manner of thing that you don't want them to do, it's attention. It's attention. And if every two minutes while you're on the phone call, before the behavior happened, if you gave attention, you'd actually get the phone call in. And over time, that they don't need the attention when you're on the phone call. Um, in any case, this is what non-contingent reinforcement, where it really kicks things up a notch. Uh, it's not good in all circumstances, but it really works in the attention field, okay? Does that make a little bit more sense now? Hopefully. All right, we are moving on. We always have a question of the day for you, and our question today is, what's your ideal vacation spot? Now, <coughs> you might be thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with autism? Well, uh, we're going to talk about that. But for a moment, take a vacation from autism. 
And where's your ideal place to go? Where would you like to go on a vacation? And we really, truly want to know this. People ask me at least three times a day, what reinforces parents? What would, like, what would be the most exciting thing? Sometimes this is asked by a company that asks my opinion. Um, sometimes this is asked by therapists. Sometimes this is asked by family members. Uh, but what, what do autism parents want? And I have ideas from things that you guys have said in the past, but I don't want to say what they are. Um, but I, I'm just saying it would be good for me to know, because uh, people want to know for contests and things like that, what would parents like to win? So let me know what is your ideal vacation spot. Where would you like to go? If you had the opportunity to go someplace, where would it be? Um, and you can write that in on Facebook, or you can write that in on the, the chat, or you can write that in on YouTube, wherever. You can email me, whatever you'd like. Um, but let's uh, move on to our topic of the day, because then I'm going to put this all back together for you in a nice little neat package with a bow. Uh, we have a topic of the week, and our topic this week is creative visualization. You know, we talk a lot on the show about mindfulness and ways that we can reduce our stress. Well, creative visualization is one of those ways. And when you do creative visualization, it's a form of meditation where you sit and get quiet and get your breath centered and you actively dream, you create some sort of visual, some sort of movie of something in your head and you are driving it. You decide what you would like to picture, what you would like to visualize. It is like taking a mini vacation. You know, years ago, somebody asked me what I wanted, and it was like one of those days, you know what I'm talking about, right? And I said, I, I want a million bucks. What do you mean, what do I want? I want a million dollars. I'd like to have a million dollars. Yeah, if you want to know what I want, I want a million dollars. And the person said to me, do you really want a million dollars or do you want to have what you think it feels like to have a million dollars? And I went, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what? What? And they said, no, stop and think about this. Because if you had a million dollars, you know, that would be lovely. But is it that today, what you, you know, what do you think a million dollars is going to give you? And I said, freedom and choices and uh, freedom from worrying. And, um, and I started as I was thinking about, they were like, well, what would you do with a million dollars? And I was like, oh, I do this and I do that and I do that. And, and so it was more, I got happy thinking about, because some of the things that I wanted to do were give it to other people to do the things that I know that they need to do, you know? And, and I got happy thinking about that. And the friend said, I just want you to notice that you feel freer and you feel happier and you feel more upbeat just thinking about it. So, and, and this went into a bigger conversation about creative visualization, that if you want to change your state because your state is overwhelmed and you're underslept and you're feeling lack, like there isn't enough abundance or a lack of, because uh, abundance can be love, it can be money, it can be food. Maybe you're like sweating out how you're going to pay the rent at the end of the month, right? Maybe you're sweating out how you're going to pay the doctor bill. Maybe, you know, your relationship isn't working. Whatever it is, 
that sometimes it's important to take a vacation and dream. Dream about what would be ideal. What would make you happy? What would further the conversation? I know it sounds airy-fairy, <laughs> like this is of no use to anybody, but if we're trying to lower our stress, if you can take a three-minute vacation and go in your mind to the spot that you just thought of, whatever it was. Let's say you thought of a beach that you want to go to Aruba and sit on the beach. And I don't have the way to get you to Aruba right now, but what if you could take three minutes, sit quietly, breathe, and think of Aruba and let everything else go and picture yourself on, a, on Aruba uh, you know, and sitting there on the beach and the smell that's coming in from the ocean and the sound of the wind in the palm trees and just breathing for three minutes thinking about that. At the end of three minutes and you ask yourself, do I feel better than I felt three minutes ago? And it might be by just a hair, um, but that's important. And I believe that if you take more than three minutes, you get a bigger bang and that your body needs that rest. So we're going to be talking today about creative visualization and how you can do that. I will tell you that my husband and I used to do this all the time and I don't know why we don't do it all the time now. Uh, honey, if you're watching, we need to go back to this. Uh, because we used to do this on a daily basis that we would do a stretch thing. I've talked about our money mantra before. We would do a whole set of stretches while we would say different money mantras for each one of us. But then we would sit on the floor. Uh, I don't even know if we can sit crisscross applesauce anymore <laughs> you know, because things are going that way. But we would sit on the floor and we would hold hands for three minutes. This is when my son was in the thickest of the you know, intervention. And we had no time, but we'd spend three minutes and hold hands and just dream. And then we would open our eyes and for one minute tell each other what we saw. And I got to tell you, so much of what I pictured has come to fruition. Um, and I reduced my stress a little bit. And a little bit is a lot, right? Okay, so creative visualization. You have, you have three minutes somewhere today. And, and you know what I always say, if at no other time you can do it when you get your kids in the car seat and they're, they're in their um, harness and, you know, you take a minute, take three breaths, you can take, um, you can take three minutes and picture Aruba. And then the kids will say, what are we doing? We got to go. But you can start to teach them this too. You can say to them, let's dream. Uh, let's dream about being on a beach and see if they're calmer because I bet they would be. All right, creative visualization. There are books about it. It's really good. There are things that are on tape that you can get that are free as well. All right, we're running late. So we got to get started, but let's talk about what's going to be on the show today. So big, big show here coming up for our autism expert. Uh, we have Julie Mominy, uh, and she's got to answer some of the questions that you guys have sent in. I'm excited about that. We're continuing the questions that we had last week with special education uh, attorney Bonnie Yates. And then in the next hour, we have this lovely young man, uh, Ben Akchen. I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure. Uh, he's a film editor, animator, and hobbyist programmer. He's going to be with us to talk a little bit about how he's had to overcome obstacles to be able to do what he wants to do. So all of that, plus more, and some creative visualization after these messages. Stick with us. 
I'm Candace Cameron Bray. Tom Bergeron. You're watching Autism Live. And you're watching Autism Live. And you're watching Autism Live. You're watching Autism Live. Do you provide care services to someone with autism? Recently, more and more children are being diagnosed with the condition and getting the support they need as awareness grows. But what happens to these children as they grow up? It's estimated that over half a million youth with autism will turn 18 in the next decade, and they'll be faced with a very difficult reality. As children with autism grow up, their services start to disappear or become very difficult to access. Things like medical care, mental health counseling, vocational training, and more. All services that are still desperately needed. The loss of support that youth with autism face as they grow up is so severe that it's referred to in the autism community as falling off a cliff. Adults with autism need the same level of support they had as children to avoid falling off the services cliff. Introducing Skills Living, the web-based software designed specifically to help transitioning youth and adults with autism so they can avoid the cliff and instead fly to success. With Skills Living, help your learner with autism develop the skills they need in all the critical areas of adult life including self-control, planning, and problem-solving, effective communication, performing life skill tasks for independent living, acquiring and maintaining employment or other meaningful activities, developing and maintaining social skills and relationships, accessing transportation and public services, and being safe. Skills Living includes a comprehensive assessment, a data collection mobile app, behavior intervention plan builder, and automatic progress reporting. It also provides a complete curriculum addressing 16 key areas spanning the entire range of functioning adulthood. Skills Living is easy to use and can be implemented by schools, parents, and autism service providers. Call or click today for your free demo and see how Skills Living can help your learner with autism avoid the cliff and instead reach their fullest potential. Skills Living. Wish, learn, become. Hard times lead to good choices. Many times you're going to find out that change is coming and it's not something that you like to see. Things sometimes just don't work. Sometimes you have to put your child in a new school. Sometimes you have to put them in a different classroom. Often you'll see this with perhaps special education versus regular education or everyone's favorite, puberty. All bets are off then. However, these things happen when they need to happen. So making that hard choice is super, super scary. But when you open those doors to look at things that maybe you've never dreamed you would have to look at, you're going to find help that you never expected. There are a lot of people out there dealing with the same things that you are dealing with, and there is a level of help that you never even knew existed. So don't be afraid when it's time to look at the scary problems that you're having. When those things come up, when the aggression increases, when things are falling apart at home, when you're getting the calls from the schools, don't be afraid. Reach out. 
find out what you need to do. You might need to look at new schools, new housing. You might need to access new levels of service. But I am telling you, you're going to see amazing things. There are children that, as they grow, do things with the help of others, very specialized support that you never thought they could do. So once you do that and you meet the child where he or she is and you give them what they need, everybody can do better and you're going to see amazing progress. Welcome back to Autism Live. I'm very excited to welcome for the first time on the show our autism expert this morning. It's Julie Mominy. And Julie, we're so thrilled that you're on the show this morning. Yeah, I'm thrilled as well. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about what your role is at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. So I am the clinical manager for three different centers in the Orange County area. And essentially, I assist with, you know, overseeing the clinical services and ensuring that there's clinical quality with the ABA program. And then I also assist with just the day-to-day Well, that's phenomenal. And so you've joined us today and we've sent you some questions over. I'm going to jump right into the first question here. Uh, Hello, ladies. My son is six, has therapy, was doing great. The last two months, he's been very whiny and overly extreme tantrums. Before, we used to get them under control, but now anything triggers it. Why does it seem like he is going backwards? Uh, didn't change anything in the environment or diet. Also, he seeks negative attention. How can we stop that? We ignore it. Do you have any other suggestions? And they send their love. So what what would you say to that mom, Julie? Sure. Um, so increases or changes in behavior can occur for a variety of different reasons. So we would first want to take a look at whether or not the behavior intervention plans are being implemented with accuracy and consistency. So before we would make any changes to how we're managing the behavior, we want to make sure that the intervention is being implemented with the technicians um, that are working with the child, as well as being carried over by, um, you know, all those interacting with the child. So this would include, um, you know, parents as well, or, you know, others interacting with the child in different settings, such as school or the community. So you'd first want to make sure that the strategies are being done the way that they should be being done. Um, The second thing we might want to consider is whether or not the function or why the behavior is happening has changed. So um, anytime we create an intervention we determine why the behavior is happening, and that basically controls how we manage the behavior. So if we have an action plan for uh, tantrum behavior in which the child is looking to escape or avoid a situation, and that's actually not why the child is engaging in the behavior anymore, then we would want to make sure that we modify the strategies that we're using so that it um, connects to the function of the behavior. Um, The second thing, too, is I know um, the mom had mentioned that there had been no changes in environment, Um, so we may want to consider, you know, there may not be a change in the home environment, but maybe there's a change in the school environment or an extracurricular activity environment environment 
to take a look at all those different settings to ensure that there's no changes. Um, and something that we consider a change, you know, we may not notice, but can affect behavior. So it could be a change in, you know, a schedule. It could be a change in a team member, a change in diet or medication or sleep pattern. So we want to make sure that we assess all of those factors. Um, another thing to consider, too, is when the treatment program progresses and the curriculum gets more difficult, we may see an increase in behavior just because the child is being challenged. So at that point, we would want to make sure that we are actively teaching um, you know, coping strategies and the replacement behavior. So teaching the child to appropriately get what they want by um, appropriate means. So usually um, we would be teaching communication because that is a significant deficit area for those diagnosed with autism. So we would want to make sure that we were actively teaching skills and communication um, so the child can better cope with the, the treatment. Um, and then in regards to the question about negative attention seeking, um, again, we would want to assess whether or not the intervention plan is being conducted the way that it should be. So there are different parts of an intervention. Um, there are what we call antecedent um, modifications or preventative strategies. So things that we're doing um, in the environment to prevent the behavior from happening um, at all. Um, and then we would also be actively teaching their replacement behavior or, you know, in this case, if it's negative attention seeking, the function is most likely because the child wants attention. So we want to make sure that we are teaching the child how to get others' attentions by, you know, saying, hey, look at me, or um, check me out, or, you know, appropriate ways of being silly. Um, because oftentimes, um, you know, children on the spectrum have a difficult time um, picking up humor um, and being able to identify, you know, um, how others are perceiving them. So sometimes they may think that they're being silly or funny, but they're actually, you know, maybe annoying somebody. So, um, you know, just kind of teaching them how to, um, you know, be a kid and, and be silly in appropriate ways. And then, of course, you know, if they are engaging in problem behaviors to get some sort of negative attention, you definitely don't want to provide attention when those behaviors occur. So attention can be um, vocal attention, you know, saying don't do that or that's not funny uh, or, you know, making eye contact or, you know, reacting with um, your body language or your facial expressions. So all of those things should be very neutral so that there's no reaction to the behavior. So that's um, a lot. Anyway. <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, that's a lot, Julie, and that's really helpful. But keeping in mind that a lot of times parents go, well, nothing changed. That thing you said, nothing changed. But somewhere something changed. And you really got to put on your sleuth hat to figure out where 
something change and it could be something positive it could be something that the child experienced as being negative it could be so many different things but you got to figure out what where that loop is uh, there was a period of time in which my son started hitting out of nowhere and we were like what happened and I said nothing changed nothing's going on and they said somebody is allowing this behavior and I was like no it's not happening it's in your mind it's not happening and then I was in a meeting with the OT and she said how he was hitting her every single day and I said what are you doing and she was like what do you mean and I, and I was like are you blocking it are you is there a consequence is there any? and she was like oh it just happens and you know once we taught her what to do about that the hitting magically went away so just make sure that you're listening to Julie and, and following up on things um, I'm going to ask Trayvon if, Trayvon if we can take a really quick, short break. Um, we just have to adjust something, and then we want to come back to you, Julie. Do you mind hanging on one second? Sure, no problem. Okay, Trayvon, have we got a really short break we can go to? Okay, we're going to take one short break. Don't go anywhere, and we're going to be right back. Here we go. Parent to parent, you might be asking yourself sometimes, why does my child have meltdowns? Well, the difference between tantrums and meltdowns, tantrums, they're a part of typical development, but meltdowns are when things get a little bit more out of control, when even the child isn't sure what's entirely wrong. Generally with a meltdown, there's an environmental component. There's something else going on outside the child that's making the tantrum worse. It's really important that we start to be detectives and take notes and look around at the environment and start to figure out what are the things that happen every time your child has a meltdown. And lastly, it's important to get help. You really can't face these kinds of things effectively completely on your own. Tantrums, they're a part of typical development, but don't accept meltdowns as something that just happens. Make sure you get help and support. You might be asking yourself if your child has autism. Thank you so much for joining us again. We are here with Julie Mominy. What a great name, uh, first of all. And she is our autism expert for the day. She is the senior clinical lead manager uh, in Southern California in, an, in a pocket of offices. Which offices did you say again, Julie? Wonderful. I love those offices. So Julie's answering your questions. This next one is, hello, I'm a special education teacher on my lunch break. How can I get a parent on board with our behavior plan for her son? He's in seventh grade. Mom reports there are no behaviors at home. At school, he has several. And I know that mom and dad tiptoe around him and don't ask him to do anything because demands are a trigger. He runs the house. He's 12. How do I get mom to see that her behavior plays a part in her son's behavior and that it needs to change? It's all, it seems almost impossible, but I know that you will have ideas and thanks. We're all on the front of our seats to hear what you have to say to that, Julie. Yeah, this is a great question and something that we commonly deal with as clinicians and teachers working with individuals with autism. And, you know, consistency is one of the most important things when it comes to behavior change. So um, if an intervention is not being implemented with consistency across 
what you're able to do in the classroom with maybe additional support or aids in the classroom, the family may not be able to implement the same type of strategy because maybe they just don't have additional support at home, um, especially if they have been conditioned um, to essentially give in to the behavior in effort to avoid one more behavior battle with their child. You know, um, it, an intervention can seem overwhelming. So first you want to make sure that the intervention can be done in the home setting. And then also, you know, to simplify it, you know, put it in terms um, where the family can understand what the strategies mean. Um, when we use or create interventions, sometimes we use behavioral jargon. So when we communicate the strategies to parents, we need to make sure to put them in layman's terms or um, use examples in everyday life for it to make sense. Um, which in turn will make it easier for them to implement with accuracy. Um, so, you know, sometimes also the interventions can seem overwhelming, especially maybe they have, um, you know, some fear of uh, the behavior that might happen if they do follow through with something. So, you know, um, if they're not able to implement all parts of the intervention, are there a few things that they can start with and be successful with? So that could be, you know, choosing a couple of um, antecedent modifications or preventative strategies like um, transition warnings, you know, letting them know that something's going to take place or that they're going to be asked to do something that maybe they don't want to do. Or, you know, maybe it could be a, a schedule you know, at home of the activities that, um, you know, the child will be engaging in for that day. Um, or, you know, focus on um, reinforcing appropriate behavior and start there because that's going to be easier than, you know, maybe uh, following through with um, a task demand. Um, so, you know, just finding out ways that maybe they can be more successful. Um, and then the other part of it, too, is, and I don't know how often you're able to have communication with the family, because I know as a special education teacher, you know, you're very busy, and so you may not have the one-to-one -one time with the family to build rapport. Um, but if you do, I would recommend setting up consistent, you know, weekly or even monthly check-ins with the family to see how things are going, seeing how you can support them in the school environment, see if they have any questions about the interventions. Um, and in some cases, I have worked with teachers that do um, home observations. So I don't know if that's an option because, you know, um, building rapport and trust with the family more likely that they are going to, you know, take what you say more seriously and see how it's going to benefit their child. Um, and that's another thing, too, is, you know, it's important to have an open conversation with the family about their priorities and what their goals are for their child and then tie in what you're doing in the classroom 
setting that is going to help their child get to where you want them to be. And if you're able to make that connection, it's more likely that they're going to be on board with your intervention. I love that answer. I love that answer because if we don't, if it's not something that's important to us, we're going to be less likely to work on it. If we don't know how to implement the strategy, it's not going to happen. If we are afraid, even if we know how to implement the strategy, but we don't know how to deal with the consequence of it, the behavior that comes back, we're only going to do it once. All of those things get in the way of a parent um, participating and making it easy, making it clear, keeping the jargon at a minimum. Uh, you're hitting all the right buttons here. I, we appreciate that. Uh, can I move on to the next question? Okay, the last question, hello, I suspect my daughter, 13 months old, is on the spectrum. We are in a parent-led intervention program and will be enrolling in CARD at the end of the year. My question is in regard to regression. New data exists that suggests regression is more common than previously thought. That said, how common is regression observed in children who are in the middle of their treatment? Does therapy help offset whatever that means regression uh, so 13 month old but I think when they said starting at the end of the year I think this is a question that came in at the end of December so uh, maybe they've already started but is is regression while in therapy common I think is the core of this yeah so um, first of all I'm really excited that the child will be enrolling in an ABA program that is the best thing to do um, and I highly recommend that um, in regards to regression, um, approximately one-third of children um, diagnosed with autism experience or reportedly lose skills within the first three years of life. Um, so, and unfortunately, the exact cause of that is unknown at this time. Um, in regards to ABA and regression in ABA, First of all, ABA is proven to increase skill progression and acquisition. So in turn, you know, if you are actively working on teaching skills, it's less likely or may lead to a reduced chance of regression. And um, sometimes we do experience um, potential regression in a treatment program um, you know, which could be, again, due to a variety of different factors. So, one, we would want to make sure that, uh, you know, maintenance procedures are in place in the program. So, that means that we have a plan to practice skills that are taught um, continuously and in the natural environment so that they're maintained. Um, you know, children and, you know, essentially all individuals lose skills that they don't actively practice on a daily basis. So, you know, as part of the program, we need to have maintenance procedures in place um, to prevent that loss of skills. So the second part of it, too, is ensuring that you have generalization procedures in place so that you are teaching skills across different environments or settings, such as the home environment, the school environment, the community environment, and you're also teaching them with different people. So
So, you know, the skill is being taught with the behavior technician in a structured ABA setting, but it's also being taught, you know, in a natural setting with the parent. Um, you know, additionally, you want to make sure that you're using different materials when you are teaching a skill so that they don't learn this just one way to do the skill. Um, so that's something to consider as well. Um, so in summary, it would be important to have uh, maintenance and generalization procedures in place to prevent regression in the first place. Thank you so much. I, um, my son regressed into autism, and when we started ABA, I was so grateful um, that we were starting to get him caught up, but I never, ever could get over to the fear that he was going to regress again. And there were times when he would master a skill, and then they would check it in maintenance, and they would see that he hadn't um, maintained it, and they would brush him up on it again. So he never ever was able to backslide for very far at all because we just kept up on things and on top of it. But I never got over the fear of it. I still have a fear that at some point he will regress. Uh, and, you know, he can wake up in the morning and be a little out of it. And I have fear. I'm like, oh, no, what is this? Um, so I, you know, I, I, I hear the fear from this parent. And, and I just want to say that the, the fear is one thing, right? And I like to remind everybody fear is false, false evidence appearing real. But if you're in there doing the ABA, good things happen. And your child, if it's a good ABA provider, your child isn't allowed to regress um, because they keep those skills up. So, Julie, thank you so much for being with us and for answering these questions. We really appreciate your expertise today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we will look forward to having you back on the show sometime. You have a great weekend. All right. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, so that was Julie Mominy, a wonderful autism expert coming to us from Southern California. She is uh, one of the senior clinical managers for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. Um, a wonderful, wonderful expert. All right. We're going to take a break. We're a little bit late getting to Bonnie. We apologize to Bonnie Yates. Um, and we're going to get her with us answering your legal questions that have to do with school. So stick with us. Hi, Lisa Ackerman back with your talk of facts, the autism journey questions and answers that you need to help your child make the progress they need. I'm here to talk to you about one really important item. A lot of people ask me the question, well, Lisa, I want to see this specialist in another state. How do I do that? You know, I don't, I don't own a jet. I don't have the ability to fly um, without great pain and travel. Not a problem. We know how to get this done. So I actually encourage families, even though in travel can be a tremendous hardship getting a child with autism through security, through the plane, and in the journey to where they need to go, we have a whole white paper on TACA about how to travel with special needs kids. So it can be done. So travel, we know that can be expensive. Not everyone has an unlimited supply of cash for air flights. We love and work with this group called MiracleFlights.org. They're fantastic. They will fly you and your child, so one parent, one adult, anywhere in the United States, one time a year. Also in the TACA document are places to stay. So often you will have people in your life that love and support your family and don't know exactly how to help. 
ask them to gift you their travel or their rewards cards or coupons for hotel rental car. That's a great way to be able to get maybe a hotel room that has a refrigerator or a microwave and that's close to a Whole Foods so you don't have that added cost of uh, going out to dinner, especially if your kid has a lot of allergies. It's important to note that there's not a pediatrician or a specialist by every Starbucks uh, in the United States. Close does not always equal best. So I bring up the travel point so you know that travel is possible, number one, and often it's really gonna help you get down the road faster for your kid and getting the answers you need from the specialist that knows what to do. So don't be afraid to travel. Welcome back to Autism Live. And we're, we, uh, we apologize to Bonnie Yates because we are running a, a little bit late, but it's time for your rights with the fabulous Bonnie Yates. She's a special education attorney with the law firm of Hirji and Chow here in Southern California. Bonnie, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Shannon. I'm, I'm like looking for my sticky that has my disclaimer on it, which is, which is <laughs> well, not can, what we want to be doing. Well, I can um, help you with a disclaimer, too. But uh, I do want to point out first that, as I said, you're with the law firm of Hirji and Chow. And uh, we want to give people the information for Hirji and Chow if they would like to contact you. And to know okay. a little bit about what they uh, do. Yeah, no, I got I got to get myself together here. All right, okay. you, I can here, do that here, while you get yourself together. So, uh, here, Jean Chow, a wonderful law firm in Southern California that we highly recommend, and um, you can visit their website, which is lawyerforchildren.com, and it's the number four, lawyerforchildren.com. There's lots of interesting stuff on their website that I promise will be very helpful to you. And you can also, on that website, request that you would like to have a free consultation with the fabulous Bonnie Yates, who uh, is a remarkable special education attorney with lots of experience in this field. And as we talked about last week, is herself uh, a mom um, that uh, of a child who was not a child anymore, but was diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In other words, Bonnie gets it uh, in a way that I think very few people do, and her entire law firm is superlative. So, well, it, it got me, Shannon, right? I didn't get it. It got me. Uh, same it here. Got me. I was drafted. Yeah. I did not volunteer. Uh, I was drafted into this as well. But, um, but you know, I, the thing that was said to me early on, uh, the dad who, who showed me card for the first time said mm -hmm. when, when he found out that I had a child with autism, he said, well, welcome to the club that you never thought you wanted to belong mm -hmm. to. But once mm -hmm. you get here, you see it's filled with amazing people. And Bonnie, you, right. are, you are one of the amazing people that I met on the way that I wouldn't trade for anything. Well, and I, I feel the same way, Shannon. Of course, I had a, a, a friend who was a stranger who got on the phone with me at 10 o'clock at night and talked to me in 1994 about her son doing card services. And she said, I know you're really discouraged right now, but there's a lot of really wonderful stuff you can do um, that'll help your child a lot. This isn't a hopeless situation. And... Um, you know, she's another person. I just would like to give a shout out to the moms and dads. She was a dentist. She got retrained. Um, I mean, she got tr she got trained in running a home ABA program, and then she went back into doing. I don't think it's high risk dentistry, but it's like specialty dentistry for kids with autism oh. that are going to come into the appointment and, and be phobic. And she developed techniques to 
work with them that didn't require sedation. So that's kind of just like a cool application. And I always figured she was like my sort of autism Eskimo, which means, for those of you that don't know, there's kind of a, a term in AA where people... The person that brings you to your first AA meeting is like your Eskimo. Right. Like I think that's you know I don't I don't quite understand why, but I guess you know they 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 got you inside the igloo out of the cold or whatever. So I mean, you uh, don't know the Eskimo story. That's the Eskimo story. No, the, the no, there's Eskimo. a there's another Eskimo story, but I'll tell it to you later. Okay. Uh. Um, this is all way more interesting than the than the disclaimer. <laughs> but let me let me tell you why we give okay. you the disclaimer. Okay. We, we give you the disclaimer because the kind of advice we give people in the office is very specific and focused. And when we sit down with people in the office or if we talk to them on the phone, we will typically ask them for two years of documents, their IEPs, district assessments, and any private assessments. And we take a very careful history and we, we apply the, the law and the facts as we know them to each other, and then we try to come up with a solution. And it's a very, or a, a case plan, and it's very specific to that child. So while there are some common things that I will probably always tell everybody, like if you're serious about this business, you got to get your own assessment by somebody you trust, um, that might not be true in the 98th case or the 99th case. So uh, on the show here, we're dealing with generalities. And so we're giving you general information um, that will hopefully help you apply your specific law to your specific facts and figure out what you need to do next. But it's not a substitute for focused legal advice, and that's why we give you the, the disclaimer. And we make it really easy for you and say, look, if you're in California, we'll even you know offer you the opportunity to have that consultation free of charge that I just described, where we look at your documents and we... Uh, give you a focused legal opinion. So that is an option, but it's not an option on this program. And so when we answer questions, even if they're from specific people, and even if we ask them for more specific information, we're not giving legal advice. So we, we want you to understand that. And that's the, why, that's the reason attorneys always give the disclaimers, because after the fact, they don't want to be in a position where somebody comes back and says, you know, you told me to do this, and I did it, and it worked out awful, and look where I am now. We're, you know, we're trying to empower you and make you more independent at these meetings so that when the district walks in, they can sense that you're not some little down feather that they can, you know, blow up to the ceiling. Um, but we also tell you frequently on this program that although IDEA was supposed to be a program that did not require attorney involvement and parents could represent themselves, at IEP meetings and so on, we don't really see anymore that that's the way IDEA is working because districts don't want to pay attorneys' fees. The whole dispute is about the money. I don't care what they say. And the only way you can cut through uh, the, the mud, the coffee grounds, is to be able to threaten them with, you know, the cost of a due process hearing. So um, that's the disclaimer for today. Okay. I like that disclaimer. Uh, so last week, Bonnie, we had some questions and we didn't get through all of them. Uh, and, we said, and we said that one of them in particular was going to lead to a bigger discussion. So I'm just going to wade in. Um, the first question that we had left was my... Do, yeah. do, do, did we do question two? Yes, we did do question two. Yeah. So yeah. we're on question three, which is about individualized transition yes. plans. And I think that was the one that you felt that there was a larger discussion to be had. A, a great, a great 
question. You want me to go ahead and read question. it? Should I read I it? I sent Shannon a goodie for you all. It's a very good publication. I didn't write it. It's called Disability Rights of California. It's a nice 25-page booklet that I think is a great piece of standalone information for individualized transition plans in California. So that that's something you can pick up after the show and you can learn more about this. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a We'll okay. Start. So how about if I read okay. the question, or do you want to read you it? Can read the, you, okay. you can read the question. Okay, my daughter is about to be 16, and her IEP is coming up. I heard on the show that she should have a transition plan. She doesn't. Is that something I'm supposed to do, or is it something the school is supposed to do? Okay. Uh, free, appropriate public education is the responsibility of the district from age three to the student's 22nd birthday. Included within that is the individualized transition plan. For the first 10 years of my doing special ed cases, I probably never even saw an individualized transition plan. And that might be shocking to you, but part of it had to do with the fact that I was doing all early intervention cases, young children with autism. Um, and I'm glad that I got to do that, and I'm also glad I got to learn about a lot of other stuff subsequent. Anyway, one day, one of the kids that, you know, I had represented when they were three grew up and was a teenager, and all of a sudden that person had an individualized transition plan, and I didn't understand too much about it, and since then I've had occasion to learn, so I want to share some of my experience about ITPs, as they're called, with you. Now, one of the things that the districts don't really like to talk about is that the test for whether somebody needs special education and related services is whether their disability has an educational impact. And the question of what that means is something that has to be considered. It's greater than an academic impact, and we've talked about that on the show before. And IDEA 2004 envisions that students will grow up, and at age 18, they will assume um, the management of their special education and um, that their educational rights will pass to them as 18-year-old as as adults. Now, some kids are going to be conserved. We know that. But there's a whole lot of people out there now that are young children um, or early adolescents um, who have autism and are high-functioning, and they are going to live as independent adults. And so for those people the individualized transition planning process is going to be quite important because they're not going to be conserved by their parents and they're going to be engaging in their own educational decision making. However, even for students who are conserved, the idea envisions that they're going to work as adults and the, uh, the federal and states, the federal statute and California state law assume that the school district has a role in the process of helping students figure out what they're going to do. So the ITP is something that needs to be in place by the 16th birthday. It can be done as early as 14. The reason for having it in place on the 16th birthday is to allow appropriate time to plan for the student reaching majority and exercising his own educational rights. Now, Obviously, some students are going to graduate with a high school diploma, and they're going to be out at 18, and they're going to be working on their ITP goals. Some may not leave school until their 22nd birthday, but it will still be appropriate, as you see later in the discussion, 
for them to be working on their ITP goals. Now, learning about ITPs for me was counterintuitive. I think that's the way I want to put it. And the reason that it's counterintuitive is because I would see something, it would be buried in the IEP, it would be, you know, 75% of the way through the document, it'd be two pages long, and it seemed like a boilerplate template that um, recited some general stuff about education and some general stuff about assessments, like, gee, we gave the student an interest inventory. didn't seem like there's a whole lot of teeth there. And when I started to think about it, that became concerning because the individualized transition plan is supposed to guide the rest of the person's life as an adult. An idea, as we've discussed, contemplates that students will have an adult life and that they will have a meaningful adult life and they will have some kind of employment. So you're in special ed from age 3 to 22 max. Okay, so that's... Um, uh, I can't even do basic math anymore. Um, that's... It's 21 years, it's 18, right? 18 years, right? 18 years, essentially, that the district is responsible for you at a maximum. And then you're, then you're let's say, a 22-year-old adult, and if you're male, the average lifespan is like at least 75 years. So all that time is left for the person and the ITP document that addresses all of that is a two-page generic document that's a, that's a cut-and-paste thing, and I don't think much attention is given to this ITP process at all. And from doing some research on the law, I think this is an area in which we need to push the law forward because I don't think the judges are being insistent that the districts develop meaningful, real, implementable transition plans. So that's kind of my starting point. And then I'm going to tell you about the individualized transition planning process and what kind of plan should result. Okay, one of the things I learned, aside from the fact that the ITP was buried in the IEP document and it was supposed to be very important and sometimes it wasn't being reviewed at all, is that if you really want to have a good ITP meeting, it should not be part of, let's say, your annual IEP. You should have a separate meeting that's devoted solely to inviting the right people and having the discussion about the planning process. So that's something for you to consider is are you going to have a separate ITP meeting? Whether you're, you do it separately or you do it as part of the um, ITP that's developed after age 14, what is contemplated is that the school district is going to conduct interest inventory type assessments and write goals to help the student, um, I'm just going to call it, you know, be constructively um, employed as an adult. And so that's a very important document. And the assessment, the interest assessment is supposed to look at the skills and challenges of the person. If the person requires alternate forms of communication for the assessment, that's perfectly permissible. One of the questions for parents is, is whether or not the student will participate in the ITP meeting or at what stage. You know, I could see a situation where a student would actually be actively involved in the development of the ITP, or I could see a situation where the student would not participate in the ITP process until the ITP was developed. That'll totally depend on, on where the student 
is in terms of his ability to participate in that process. But the district's supposed to do career interest surveys and figure out what the student might want to do. I have a lot of um, criticisms of those interest inventories because, first of all, um, the ones I've seen by outside professionals, if you get an independent evaluation in the area of transition, they do a much more thorough job. They have a lot more, it seems like, tools in their toolkit. The district seems to do with these very preliminary kind of checklist things, and they basically, it seems like, they feel that if they get the student in the room for 15 minutes and they ask them some general questions, they've satisfied the process as far as the ITP. So I think that part could be a lot more robust. And I learned in researching this for this program that they are supposed to compile something called a summary of performance transition portfolio. I've never even heard that term before. Nor have so I. <laughs> those of you that are looking at your ITP, let's all start asking for that summary of performance yeah. transition portfolio. And you don't have to write this all down. It's all in the goodie. Okay. It's all outlined in the goodie. I'm, I'm shamelessly, you know, pirating and paraphrasing their material and combining it with my experience. But so the document that I've given you will assist you greatly in understanding transition services and developing your ITP. So the plan is part one, and you're supposed to have adult goals that are measurable. I've never seen transition goals that are measurable. Uh, documenting what you will study or do, and you know, not everybody's gonna study. Some people are gonna get a job. Some people are gonna work on their independent living skills. So it's gonna be targeted to where the individual student is at. And then there, there, there need to be annual measurable goals based on the special needs of the student. And then there's also going to be a list of transition activities. So the activities are those things that the student needs to do to, to meet his goals. So let's say the student has been working in a billing office and they want to learn how to do medical code billing. The transition activity might be, I will take a six-month university course resulting in a medical coding certification so that I can do medical code billing. That would be one type of instructional service. Let's say the goal is I want to work at my CVS. I've been doing that since my high school uh, community-based instruction program, but my mom's been driving every day. They've offered me a job, and I need to learn how to take the bus. So you could have a goal that would be a transportation goal that would allow you then to um, get to work. Or you could say, um, I'm really interested in starting a catering business, but I need to work on learning how to measure and cook. And I mean, it's kind of a, you know, it's like, a, it, it, it's supposed to be an individualized program based on interests and abilities. And it's supposed to include functional vocational activities. But Bonnie, I'm going to and, stop you for just a second to yeah. say that as you're saying this, and parents are hearing this, and I can hear them going, uh, does that mean that the school has to provide that instruction or pay for it? Because that's crazy town for a lot of parents. They're like, what, they, they're going to teach my son how to ride the bus? Who's going to do that? Yeah. 
And a lot of times I think schools aren't set up to do that, but legally this is what they're supposed to do, correct? Right. They're, I mean, yes, they're supposed to participate in the transition process till 22. Yeah. And uh, there are, you know, what, what we call CBI programs, community-based instructional programs in public high schools where they do a lot of, they will do travel training, they will, let's say, go out to lunch and learn how to work with money. Um, those programs could be really, really good and really, really robust. I think a lot of the time, unfortunately, they're not. Um, but yes, that is the school district's obligation. Now, they're also supposed to provide services to support the transition plan. And typically, there's something on the IEP called career guidance. And it's usually no more than 30 minutes a week. But there's no reason that the services have to be limited to that. The services are whatever's necessary to effectuate your transition. Now, um, as I said, the independent living services could involve shopping or cooking, travel training, how to maintain a household. And all the areas should be identified via a functional evaluation that looks at the strengths and weaknesses and helps a student figure out what their focus area is. So in order to prepare for your ITP, you need to have an agenda, you need to bring questions, and you need to develop the IEP. You'll also have to consent to the transition assessment. And if you get the transition assessment back, which you never do, so it's also interesting to ask for the backup documents, and you feel that the transition assessment was incomplete vis-a-vis -vis how transition is supposed to work, you can ask for an outside transition assessment by an independent evaluator, and there are people that do those evaluations, and I suspect that they're a lot more useful often. Um, the regional center is obviously going to play a role in this once a person is over 22, maybe before, but there's another agency called the Department of Rehabilitation, which is not limited to special education students that maybe parents have only heard about in the most um, minimal way. Uh, and the Department of Rehabilitation should be invited to participate in the transition planning process, and they should be invited to the ITP. I'm not really going to go into what Department of Rehab does, except for to say that it retrains people for vocational employment. But they can do things like, I mean, we had a client who had a job at a, at a car parts place, and Department of Rehabilitation offered him a counselor that helped him help support his employment so that if issues came up, they could be navigated successfully. Uh, in the goodie that I sent, there's a whole separate link to Department of Rehabilitation with another pamphlet, which I took a look at. So if you want to know what the Department of Rehabilitation is supposed to be doing, it's supposed to be doing a lot. They also talk about the role of regional center uh, in, the, in the transition planning process. Uh, and certainly those people can be um, brought into the IEP team meeting. Apparently the standard for DOR services is whether the person has a physical or mental impairment that causes a substantial impediment to employment. So um, that's their role. And as I said, regional center helps with preparation for employment, supported employment, um, can provide day programs, which are for people that don't have the capacity to work, um, supported living and behavior management. And parents don't really know necessarily what's possible and the regional center is not always good at maybe making that clear to them. 
but there are people who work in the regional center and all they do is transition planning. And those people should be resources for parents in, in the ITP process. And, and I guess the final thing about all of this is if you get through the whole thing and you don't agree with your ITP, you know, you have a right to go to due process on the ITP just as you do on any other component of the IDEA. Okay. So that's, that's, that's an intro to the ITP process. Fabulous. And for this parent, though, because we've had a lot of parents experience this where they're about to be 16 and no one has mentioned an ITP. Mm -hmm. Nobody, there isn't one, and and so the parent is saying, do I need to initiate this? Is this something that only happens if the parent asks for it? No, it's supposed to happen by, by automatically by the age of 16, beginning as early as 14. With the booklet that Shannon's going to send to you, I think it'll be really easy to see that all you need to do is write them a letter that says, um... I understand that this is supposed to be in place for my child by his 16th birthday. His 16th birthday is going to be April 26, 2019. It's now February. I'm concerned about whether the assessment process has been started. I expect to have a, an IEP on or before his 16th birthday to discuss these services. Please contact me to let me know what we do, need to do next. Awesome. Awesome. But I, I do want to let parents know that it, it, we've been hearing from a lot of people who say, yeah, no, I've never heard of that. The school has not mentioned it to me. I don't, I don't see it anywhere. That, unfortunately, that is not uh, uncommon. But again, perfect verbiage that uh, Bonnie just gave you that you can write and say, you know, I'm aware of it and we, we need to do that. Spectacular. I think we are essentially out of time, though, Bonnie. Um, okay, well, that leaves us at, a question, at question four for yes, next week. it does. Question four, we will answer your question, how do you get to school to provide a one-to-one -one aid? That'll be at the top of the program next week. But these were super good questions yes. and, and um, certainly allowed me to learn more, which is always my goal. Will you please, please, please send more questions for next week so we can have a really interesting show? Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much. And tell us how we can uh, reach here, Jian Chow, again. Okay. Uh, our phone number, 310-391-0330. And our uh, website, lawyer number four, lawyer4children.com. And I really do appreciate the questions and, and will endeavor to answer them uh, thoughtfully and um, hope to have some more questions soon. We so do love you. them and we appreciate you more than you know, Bonnie. Thank you so much and thank everybody at Hear G and Chow for us. Okay, sounds good. All right, take, take care. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, so we're going to take a break and then we have a wonderful guest, Ben Avchen, I'm sure I'm still slaughtering his name, but he's going to fix it for us when he gets in here. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this. Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say, Traven? I nailed it. Well, I didn't the first time. Let's just be honest about that. Uh, but we are looking forward to talking with Ben about all the things um, that he has overcome to be able to do the vast and uh, amazing things that he's doing. Uh, he's got a BFA in film and television. We uh, Clearly, we need him here. Uh, so uh, we'll talk with Ben about all that he's got going on after these messages. Stick with us. Nobody ever asks a kid with autism, what is it you really like to do? At this school, we ask the kids, what is your goal? What is your dream? 
Exceptional Minds is a vocational training program for young adults on the autism spectrum who want to have careers in computer animation and visual effects. I think young people with autism are totally underestimated. When you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. They all have different talents, different skills, and what surprised me is that there really are no limits. That if these guys believe that they can do something, they really can. It's estimated that 90 to 95 percent of young adults with autism are unemployed or underemployed. A lot of young adults still live at home. A lot of them suffer from depression and are very isolated from the rest of the world. And the opportunities for them are very limited. We want to develop careers for our young adults. Our full-time program runs three years, at the end of which we have job placement and job coaching. We have a work readiness program. We also have our own in-house studios so that when our students graduate, they can do on-the-job training and work on real projects. We outsourced about 30, 40 shots to the team here. They did fantastic work that we can put into a movie and be proud of it. It's great. I mean, we want to do it again. The studio is their first step into the professional world, their first step in their new careers as digital artists. The whole purpose is to get the students out into the real world. We all have the same dreams. We want significance, dignity, and purpose with our lives. We have an opportunity to give those three words to every single student at this school who will actually be able to go out and participate in the dream. This is my first full-time, full-paying job. I primarily work in After Effects. I learned After Effects at Exceptional Minds. It seemed like a good place for me to fit in because I was interested in animation. Right from the first day that Nikki set foot in our company, he was producing work for us. We saw what level of professionalism is being instilled in them from the very beginning. This was the first opportunity where Nikki could combine something he loved to do with something he was really, really good at that could eventually lead to employment. When we first met Kevin, he was working in a supermarket bagging groceries and they said he would never amount to anything else. I work at Stargate Studios and uh, I'm a junior compositor. I mainly do like rotoscoping right now and I'm still learning. I think that you find great talent in the most amazing places. The students at Exceptional Minds have had a fair amount of training to get them ready for the visual effects environment. If it wasn't for Exceptional Minds, I might still be at the supermarket and I might be living at my parents' house. Everything's changed. Nikki has purpose. It feels like I'm a member of society now. He's capable of making it on his own. Once you get inside and you see what's really happening there, you immediately want to be a part of it. It's the dream factory, you know, the, the movie business. And, and if you can connect people with their dreams, then the magic happens. At Exceptional Minds, we like to say that we are changing lives one frame at a time. Welcome back to Autism Live. Joining us in the studio, our wonderful guest, Ben Avchen. I've got the name right now. 
Yes. <laughs> you won't believe, I, I don't even want to tell you what I said in the first hour because it was something that had none of the consonants that are in your name. It was like some wild interpretation of your name. So I'm glad I got it finally right. Thrilled <laughs> to have you here with us. I met you for the first time at the Spec Labs uh, El Ray show, yes. Yes, at the El Ray Theater, which we, we were live. If you guys missed that, it's still in our Facebook chain. Um, and so many fabulous performers were there, including the gentleman who is the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants and his band, which they were yeah. amazing, were they not? Yeah, they were, they were really, really good. And, you know, Tom Kenny, such a class act. He, yeah. he really, he really made that night phenomenal. And same thing with Jason and Garth as well. Well, Jason and Garth, who are the the, the creators and heads of uh, Spec Labs, yeah. and we've had them on the show before, they are two gentlemen that I hold in the highest esteem. They are remarkable, and the things that they do with their students are always so interesting, so diverse, so fabulous that I love getting to go to anything that they do. I understand that you have done a little bit of work with them, that you have, uh, you, you've been someone who you've taken some of their classes. Is that what I'm trying to say? Um, well, I have taken their animation class, uh -huh. but um, I'm kind of a special case because um, Jason's actually asked me to help edit a lot of their projects because I am a film editor and Something I am going to school for is, you know, film editing. I'm going to a private film school in Tarzana called Columbia College Hollywood and pursuing a bachelor's of fine arts. I did not know that in Tarzana you could get a BFA in film editing. This is very exciting to me, and I'm going to have more questions about that. But um, we want to start by talking a little bit about your story um, because I understand that you identify as somebody who is on the autism spectrum. You got a diagnosis when? Um, I was diagnosed at two years old. I was, I believe, two years, one month old. It was in April of 1998 okay. where um, my parents both took me to see a um, speech therapist or speech pathologist mm -hmm. who brought up the word autism and she referred them to somebody who could, you know, help me. And from that point, um, I was officially diagnosed with autism, mm -hmm. I believe PDNOS, is that? PDDNOS, PD yes. PDDNOS, yes, yes, not otherwise specified. Right. And so I'm guessing that you had a little bit of language then, if you were PDDNOS, or no? How, what, what did you, what do your parents say um, that you were exhibiting at that time that made everybody think autism. Were you talking? I was not talking. At all? No, that was the first thing that okay, was absolutely crucial to my development was to get me talking. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you don't have memories of being two. Um, I don't so, think anybody does. <laughs> right? Um, but what, when did you first hear the word autism in conjunction with yourself? How old were you? That's a very good question. Thank you. <laughs> I've been trying to figure that out for the longest time, but I believe it was either middle or high school. I think the, like, I know the first time I heard the term special education was in middle school. I believe it was seventh grade where my special education teacher, um, my special education teacher who taught study skills, right. which is, you know, that classroom where you get to um, 
basically get a bunch of help from sure. people who, you know, are trying to help people with, you know, disabilities and mm-hmm. other related disorders. And they brought up, oh, you know, you guys are in special education and, you know, this is a special education class. Right. And that's that's when a lot of people's reactions might tend to differ. What I mean by that is some people might think, oh, you know, I'm a special case. I have something. There's something wrong with me. To me, I just thought of it as, oh, cool. I'm special. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> Because like of the that. term special education. So I saw it more as a positive. And to this day, I still see it as nothing but something that has positively impacted me. I love that answer. So from to get from two, where you weren't talking, and as you said, mission number one was to get you talking, and here you are. You are this incredibly articulate young man um, who came up to me at, while I was there at, at the El Rey, and you said, hi, I'm Ben, and I'd like to give you my card, which <laughs> led to me having you come here. I mean, so how old are you now? I'm 22. Okay, I know a lot of 22-year-olds who would not have the confidence to come up to somebody and say, here's my card, I, you know, I'd like to introduce myself. Um, so forgive me for saying to you, there are a lot of people who are going to look at you and they're going to go, how did you get from there to here? Because we all want to know that because everybody wants to go with you. You see what I'm saying? Right. Because we look at you, and you are what we all hope for. And uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm an inspiration to a lot of people. There we go. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Of course you are. But, but regardless of ever getting a diagnosis, like I think when people think, how would I like my 22-year-old son to behave and feel about himself, not because they have a diagnosis of autism, just in general. How would I like my 22-year-old son to be? And I think we all would agree, you know, you're hitting it out of the park. You're polite. You are clearly somebody who is intelligent and well-spoken, can advocate for yourself in college and have a sense of purpose and direction. (laughs) That's good across the board. But then we're being told, oh, you have this autism diagnosis and you weren't speaking and everybody's leaning in going, okay, how'd you get from there to here? So tell us, how did you get from there to here? Well, I first want to add that, you know, a common reaction is you're, you're on the autism spectrum or you're autistic. You, you don't look autistic. Right. You seem normal to me. Yeah. And, you know, the story about how I got to here today is a long one, but... I want to share that, you know, in the beginning, it was, you know, it was, it was a challenge for my parents. And I, I really, you know, in order to get to this point, you know, like you said, I had to begin communication. That was, you yeah. know, crucial to my development. And luckily, I started talking by the age of three. Now, they say that... Um, there's something called neuroplasticity in the brain. And what that means is that the brain is um, shaping and molding up until the age of three. That's what I believe researchers yes. say. Yeah. Like my mom and I thought for the longest time that, you know, it was actually age five. But I did a little bit of digging. I learned that it was actually age three. Mm. So 
I think one of the biggest things about my success is, you know, I really have to give credit to that autism diagnosis and credit to the people who have helped shape me, like my speech therapist when I was two years old and, mm -hmm. you know, later down the road, my teachers and my friends and mm -hmm. everybody who's had a positive impact in my life and have, you know, approached me and, you know, gone for, oh, this kid has potential. Yeah. And so they looked more at me in a positive light rather than a negative light. And I that's, that. that's something I think is extremely important. And thank you for being willing to share that with us because I know that isn't really the thing that you most want to talk about. And I always feel like uh, apologetic about it because I know that our audience is like, but how did he get there? Um, but you're a person working on things and that's really why we've invited you on the show. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you're working on things. So let's get to talking about it. So you're in uh, college right now, five months before. I said before you have your BFA. That's in five months. But you're almost there. Less than five months Less now. than yeah. five months. So It's going to come by quick. But I understand you're already working on a documentary. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because yeah. right now I'm currently in production of a documentary film I'm producing and directing called The Buzz in Ben. And that's, you know forwards the buzz um the kind of the naming convention of this you know it took me a while to figure out the name but i had the idea of buzz meaning you know the buzz that's going on in my brain yeah and you know all these creative endeavors that i'm doing and okay. i'm getting excited but <laughs> uh, that's okay we enjoy excitement here uh but i like that because uh, you know you're an interesting person and we'd like to know what's going on in your head you know, uh, yeah. uh, so and that's kind of what you're talking about. So this documentary, you're going to reveal to us all the things going on in your head. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's going to tackle a lot of the struggles of my past, but also about the successes of my journey. And I'm really excited to be working on this documentary. And I'm excited for when we finally get to reveal it to the world. Um, it's for my thesis film, which is, you know, supposed to be a short 10 to 15 minute project that we do in our senior year of college. Mm -hmm. But I came about it with the approach of, you know what, I see this as potentially being a feature film. Okay. And I've been out shooting documentary interviews with people from my past, such as, you know, my family, my friends, teachers, and anyone else who I've inspired or who has inspired me. Great. And... If I could talk a little bit more about the documentary. Sure, absolutely. Because this is, you know, such a passion project for me right now because I want the world to know, you know, that I want people to understand that, you know, autism doesn't have to be a disability. In fact, I see my autism as nothing but an ability. And I honestly think it's ironic in a way because the fact that, you know, I'm on the autism spectrum and that the autism community has been so wonderful. It's actually provided me more opportunities yeah. being on the spectrum rather than if I were just neurotypical or normal. And I want people to hear that because for, for people who have very young kids and they're in the thick of starting intervention and getting diagnosed 
and they, their child still isn't talking, and this moment in time feels very painful to them, right? Yeah. I want you to see this young man and hear what he's saying, because so often they will hear people who've been longer, parents who've been longer on this journey and have kids that are a little bit older, and they will hear people say things like, um, you know, we look at autism now as being a gift that we were given, and sometimes they get mad when they hear that because they're in this one slice in time where it feels painful. But I want you to hear what this young man is saying about how he feels about himself and the things that having this diagnosis, and I agree with you, I love what Howie Mandel says. He says, let's stop talking about disability and let's talk about this ability. What, exactly. And whatever that is, let's talk about that. Um, and that when we open our minds to that, all kinds of things are possible, and I hope that this show showcases that, which is part of the reason why I wanted Ben to come on the show, so you can hear his experience of where he's coming from. Um, and then hopefully we get to see all of that in your documentary. So when are you, what's the timeline on this? When do you think that we're gonna be able to see the buzz in Ben? Um, I'm gonna take a guess and say, a trailer maybe in June okay possibly a 10 to 15 minute short uh, which my goal is I'm hoping that you know we can start post-production or the editing process by next month okay. because we're almost done with shooting you know all the interviews and okay. I actually have a big um, bunch of interviews lined up for this weekend so uh -huh. That's in the back of my mind right now. I'm getting ready for that. Okay. But then after that is, you know, just a few interviews left. And then after that, I could start cutting it together. And by the way, yes. it's nice because I actually have access to a bunch of raw footage from my childhood. And yes. that shows a lot of the meltdowns, the, um, some of the creations I've made, and more into that later. But, and also some of my, you know, raw footage from video projects I've done in the past since, mm -hmm. you know, I'm so into, you know, filmmaking. Yes, absolutely. And I know we're going to talk at some point about recommendations that you have for parents, especially of newly diagnosed kids. Uh, but having that videotape, a lot of times parents don't want to videotape because when something negative is happening, it's not our first instinct to go, hey, let me pick up a camera and document this painful mm -hmm. moment when my child's having a meltdown mm -hmm. and when I feel like I don't know what's going to happen. But we see yeah. in a lot of people that it's actually very helpful. It's helpful in helping to figure out what's going on with the child and solve it. Um, because tantrums are a form of communication, and when we give better ways of communicating, tantrums go away. Um, but also, you know, I, I know, you know, a lot of people have reported that being able to look back on it and see those things on tape is healing for them and their parents later on when they're not in that space anymore. And when you're ready to make a documentary, the footage is there. Yeah. <laughs> I like to add that, you yeah. know. When I was a kid, when I'd see the camera, I'd get even more frustrated. It's like, uh, why are you recording me? Right? I don't want you to record. So my mom would have to secretly record oh. it and to get the audio of it. <laughs> so she, well, she was hiding cameras underneath things? Yeah, and it's um, a little bit complicated, but, you know, uh, once I get into editing the film, I'm, I'm going to figure something out. Okay. But there's a lot of footage in there, and it's... It's not just going to talk about the negatives. I really want the documentary overall to be a success story. It is a yes. success story. It's my success story about how I overcame the obstacles 
of autism and you know in spite of all that you know i, think I was we able all want to see that i was able to you know follow my dreams and yes you know make I, it to where i am today exactly so at some point uh the buzz and ben will be able to see it and you'll make sure that we can know so that we know where to see it and when to see it but i'm curious what are your hopes and dreams for later on you're getting a bfa in television and film so what what does it when you we earlier today we talked about creative visualization and dreams and how we all have to have dreams that we're moving towards what what where do you think you're going to be in 10 years what do you want to be doing Oh, that's a good question because um, I'm actually not sure. Like, yeah, I think my career can go in any direction at this point. Like, I'm emphasizing in editing, mm -hmm. and that's where I want to start out. Is you know, editing projects, um, maybe get editing internship with a major studio, um, maybe continue with Jason and Garth yeah. with Spectrum Laboratory. Well, I, I wish you'd said something sooner because, you know, I, I, I know people who have a very small studio that sometimes look for editing interns here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're about to graduate. So uh, we only take students, and if anybody's interested, who, while they're getting, they have to get course credit uh, while they're here. But we are always looking for editing interns. So it would have been nice mm -hmm. to have had you a year ago. That would have been super fun. Uh, but we can't afford you now. That's the point. Uh, you have too many skills. Uh, so, well, I know that all those things are going to happen for you and much more. Um, I can't wait to see the buzz in Ben. We said before that we were going to talk a little bit about advice for parents. So for all the parents that are out there watching right now, um, some of whom have those very recently diagnosed kids, what do you want to say to them, Ben? Please don't lose hope because... It's going to be different. It's going to be a different. It's going to be a different experience. Yeah. Like, it's not going to be typical. It's, you know, your child on the spectrum is going to definitely have a lot of struggles. And, you know, you as a parent or guardian are going to have a lot of struggles as well. And I just want to say that, you know, you just keep pushing them little by little and you know, not too much to the point where, you know, they can't handle it, you know. You, you help them, you know, make small little victories at a time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of, you gradually um, introduce them to new things and you eventually get them to come out of their comfort zones a little bit. You know, I know that a big thing that helped was positive reinforcement. And... A lot of encouragement because your child might be really creative and have something to share with the world mm -hmm. or you know they might they might have a meltdown simply because they're trying to communicate something to you and they can't find the words and they end up lashing out having a meltdown and um, might start throwing things might you know it might seem like it's you know a major tantrum it's not a tantrum it's it's way, it's way more than that. Yeah. And, I, you know, you mentioned being encouraging, and I see in a lot, because, you know, I have a son who's 15, and uh, he's my world. 
Like there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. I think he's the most awesome thing ever invented. Um, and you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about him. He is superlative, right? And I, I think sometimes he doesn't quite know what to do with that, but I have seen across the years and looking at people like you um, and, and other individuals that I look at and I go, oh, look at how amazing you are, you know? What did your parents do and I, that helped you to be this amazing? And what I hear a lot of times is your parents were supportive. So here you are, you're a film major. At what point did you start wanting to videotape and how did your parents support that? That's a, not a good question. Um, I'm so glad you like my questions. <laughs> I'm deeply I'm showing very enthusiastic, you know, signs of liking your questions. Yeah. I like um, yeah, I started, you know, picking up the camera when I was like six years old. And eventually I just fell in love with the, the craft of, you know, making videos. Um, granted, this was way before I knew what editing was. I mean, once I discovered the concept of editing, the whole world changed. It was like, you could do this and you could do that and you could put this here and put that there and, you know, it's turn it into right? something even more than just, you know, roll camera, cut, okay, that's the right. project. Because right. as a kid, I started out with an old, um, I want to say a VHS type DV camera. And right. um, I'd have play dates with my friends and, you know, we'd ended up acting out these scripts I'd write of um, my cartoon character, Buzzy the Bee. And he's also an inspiration slash um, driving force for this documentary film I'm producing. Uh -huh. Also, one of the reasons why I decided to make my username Buzz and Ben with the letter N. Uh -huh. You know, I've actually had that username Buzz for and ben. over 10 years now. Um, and that also inspired the name of the documentary. But anyway, getting off topic there. But... You know, when I was a kid, I'd have these, you know, playdates with my friends, and we'd act out in front of this camera with these plush toys. Uh-huh. And... Which sounds exactly like James Cameron and Steven Spielberg. They did exactly the same things yeah, as kids. It does kind of sound like that. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's... But, but your parents didn't squash that. They Did they say, you know, hey, do you need help with this? What did your parents do about this? Well... Did they feed into it? Well, one of the things I'd do is um, I'd make a whole mess of the living room, but uh -huh. my mom wouldn't. My mom wouldn't say, "Ah, oh, you're making a mess of the living room." Okay. No, she'd encourage it. She'd like. I love that. Except when I'd have a meltdown. Yeah. Because yeah. as a young aspiring director, <laughs> something I kind of struggled with a lot was to communicate my vision to my mm. friends. And when I couldn't communicate my vision to my friends, or they'd goof off, or you know, they wouldn't do something, you know, the they way I... They were taking it as seriously as you Yeah, were. and if yeah. they didn't, you know, do it the way I intended, I might lash out, have a meltdown. And then what would happen is my mom would ask them to leave, and then mm. I'd end up having a meltdown in front of oh, my mom. Be yeah. like, why did you do that? Why did you ask them to leave? We were so close to getting this done. Right. But, you know, at that point, it was too late. I was already out of control. And then the most she could really do was, you know and calm me down and you know but that set up for you parameters of you know you have to find a way to be able to communicate with your peers otherwise the whole thing shuts down are you a better director because of that do you think i think i'm improving yeah <laughs> like i think as a director in general um 
that's that's something I also aspire to possibly get into, like possibly transitioning from editing to directing later down in my career. Again, I'm not sure. Like, it could go really in any direction. Well, I keep saying director because you are a director because you're directing your own uh, right. documentary. Yeah. And so, you know, the truth is, even though your passion has been editing, you're, you're a director. Um, and I notice also that, and you had mentioned you're into animation as well. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, thanks to Danny Bowman, who uh -huh. um, is also a young artist on the autism spectrum. If you're watching, Danny, hi. But if... If not, um, you know, I'll show this to you later. But There we go. But Danny's wonderful. We've had her on the show several times. She's so talented. And uh, at such a young age began doing her own films, animating her own films, and then teaching Yeah, age others. 11, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, she's just a brilliant person. But I love the fact that she spends so much of her time teaching others. Yeah, and that uh, brings me into something I'm also interested in, uh -huh. is possibly becoming a teacher. Oh. It's in the back of my head, and the more I think about it, the more possible I think it is, you know. So you've got lots of options. Yeah, there's lots of opportunities for me, and I believe uh, something that I struggle with is, you know, there's things i got to say no to, there's things i like got to turn down. I can't do it all, but I can try and do as much of it as I can. You're amazing, Ben. Are you an only child, or do you have siblings? I'm an only child. Okay. Uh, your parents, uh, I, I'm sh I can't, I, sometime I'd like to meet them. I'm sure that they're amazing people because you're an amazing yes, person. Yes, I'd love for you to meet my mom. Um, she offered to drive me today, but uh, I came but here by myself. But you were so, independent, yeah. independent, yeah. Uh, which is also impressive and inspirational to all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, well, remarkable. If people want to know more about you and they want to, like, do you have a Facebook page? For... I have a website. Um, oh, well, then. It's kind of been on off in the works, me constantly trying to figure out, you know, it's kind of, um, it's up. It's, okay, so where should they go? What's the website? The website is buzzandben.com. That's B-U-Z-Z, -Z, the letter N-B-E-N.com. Dot com. And okay. you can find my projects, uh, what I've currently been doing, my social media, um, my YouTube, you know, has a lot of my stuff from the past. Um, okay. It's impressive. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled that I got to meet you. Thank you for coming up to me with your business card because it led to this. And yeah, this thank you for lovely. inviting me. This oh, has been this, phenomenal. This has just been wonderful, and I know that you've provided a lot of inspiration for everybody. We'll have to have you back, uh, and yeah. maybe you'll come back and show us your trailer when your trailer's done. Oh, that would be wonderful. That you know, I'm trying to get well. the trying to get the word out there. You know, yeah. probably the biggest thing will be you know, getting getting the film out there, getting it distributed. Um, yeah. Possibly starting a Kickstarter for it. Yeah. Um, Maybe in June, along with, you know, a trailer for the film. Like, the film is almost done, you know. It's just, like I said, getting it out there. There you go. Maybe get yourself to Sundance. Wouldn't that be That would be, be fun? fantastic. That Honestly. Would, right. That would, like, let's, let's say that's, that that's going to like, happen. In the back of my head, that's kind of a goal. That's buzzing back there. All right. Well, Thanks. <laughs> that, was a good, that was a good point. <laughs> buzzing. Yeah, buzzing back there. So let's, uh, let's say that, you know, next year at this time, you're going to be sitting here talking to me about how you just got back from Sundance. That would be cool. Would that not? 
I'm really hoping it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, hard work, and you're doing the hard work, and that's how that happens. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here. We're going to take a break, and then I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about creative visualization and how picturing things like Ben going to Sundance, how those can help you to de-stress and get where you want to go. So thank you so much for being here. Stick with us. Hello, fellow activists. Last week, we talked about the first step to empowerment, accept and embrace this challenge. Sometimes you have people that support you in your denial. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your mother. When I expressed my concern to my pediatrician about Wyatt losing language around the age of two, his response, maybe he's a late talker, he's a boy. Let's wait and see. <laughs> But what about the temper tantrums? What about the fact that he put his head through the kitchen window? What about the bite marks and scratches all over my arms and chest? He said he's probably just frustrated that he can't express himself. Let's wait and see. But autism doesn't afford us that luxury. Of course, I was relieved of my pediatrician's reassurances, but I should have gone with my gut. Because if I had, I could have gotten a diagnosis two years earlier and I lost two valuable years that could have been spent on early intervention. And finally, when Wyatt was diagnosed, he was misdiagnosed. But of course, part of that was my problem too. I lied in a lot of those parent questionnaires so things looked better. I can't turn back the hands of time, but I can recommend that you face this challenge head on. Denial prevents us from walking a path we eventually will have to walk anyway. The sooner you face the truth, the sooner you can help your child. Until next time, take care of yourself and keep the faith. Parent to parent, one of the most frightening things there is is when your child wanders away or elopes. This is when they leave an area without permission. And we know science has shown that over 50% of children on the autism spectrum will engage in this kind of behavior. But we don't have to just accept it as fact. There are things that we can do to teach our children how to appropriately ask when they want to go someplace. But before we can teach, we have to know why they're doing it. Are they wandering away to go to something or are they wandering away to escape something? Really important that we know that. And once we do know that, then we can put in place these really effective teaching strategies. I want to remind you though that if your child is engaging in this kind of behavior, it's really important to work with an expert. Get professional help. They'll be able to effectively figure out why your child is doing it and put an intervention in place that's effective. And when you stop and think about it, there's nothing more important than keeping our children safe. You might be asking yourself, a VIP, what on earth is that? Sorry, I'm staring at myself going, oh my goodness, a BIP, what on earth is that? Uh, let me just tell you, it's a behavior intervention plan. Uh, okay, so we only have a few minutes here at the end of the show, but I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about the creative visualization. So here's the thing, you know, I, I, a lot of times uh, people talk about something called the secret. Remember when the secret was a big thing about 10 years ago? And um, 
this is slightly different, but it, I don't want you to think it's a magic trick. Nobody's talking about a magic trick that you just sit on your floor and you meditate and suddenly, you know, uh, you win the lottery and people start delivering cash at your door. Uh, it's not, it doesn't work like that, right? Um, <clears throat> but what we're talking about, we're, we're talking about using creative visualization to meditate in order to get to a happy place where things are not stressful. It's like a mental vacation. But I will tell you that a byproduct of when you sit and think about what would be the most wonderful thing that I could imagine and you start visualizing it and it starts making you happy, then what has happened is you've drawn attention to the fact that that is a desire that you have. And when we are clear with our desires, then we get clearer with our intent and then that makes us clearer with our language and it makes us clearer with our actions. And you know, there's a very specific uh, equation in our bodies that what we think becomes what we say becomes what we do and what we do leads to consequences, right? So if what you are thinking all the time is, I am a failure, then at some point you will voice that to someone, even if it's to yourself in the mirror, and you will walk and hold yourself saying, I am a failure, and then you will do things coming from the point of view of, oh, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna mess it up, and then often it becomes self-fulfilling, right? Whereas if we back that equation up, and if you say to yourself, I'm capable of doing this, then that becomes what you say to people. And you'll find it's, that is the magic trick, that you, if you constantly are saying to yourself, I can do this, which is why I always say to you, si se puede, right? Because we can do this. If you find yourself saying that, then somebody says, can you do this? And you go, yes, I can. And then you end up doing it. And when you do it and you're like saying to yourself while you're doing it, I can do this, a lot of times you will find that you will be successful. And when you're not successful, you will take that failure and say, that's okay because it just means that I got to try this in a different way. And then you do, and then you are successful at that. So w one of the byproducts of creative visualization is not only do you sit there and you get that mental vacation of being on the beach for a couple of minutes, but off often when you allow yourself to dream, what you're doing is saying, this is important to me. And when you've identified that something is important and you get clear, Dr. Phil always says, you got to name it to claim it. When you identify this is important to me, it brings attention to it and you will find yourself making different choices, which then help you to get to that. It's not that you just sit and meditate um, and then things show up. It's that you allow yourself to say, I want that. And when you do, you will see that your actions will change in according to that. For instance, you know, the thing that I would always sit when my husband and I would, would do our creative visualization and we'd sit on the floor and I would picture my son being someplace and saying to me uh, that he was in a cap and gown and that he would say to me, I'm off to change the world. Now, uh, that made me feel good. That made me have hope. Notice that the picture didn't have everything. It didn't say where he was going or where he was graduating from. It was just this feeling of him being capable, right? That that's, and, and, and so there have been many times along the way where I've been tired 
and I don't get things done. And please don't think that I'm a perfect parent. There is no Parent of the Year award coming here. It's not coming. Um, and I, cause I wouldn't deserve it. Right. But there are times when I have been too tired and said, I don't, I don't, I just don't want to deal with whatever. Right. I don't want to teach him right now. I know I have to teach him how to do laundry from beginning to end. I've taught little parts of it, but not the beginning to end. And he's 15 and a half. This is looming. I have, I'm late. I got to do it. And I don't want to do it, but you know what happens? I picture him in that cap and gown saying, Mom, I'm off to change the world. And that cap and gown is not covering dirty, rumpled clothes. Right? And I and so it spurs me on and I go, oh, yeah, we got to get that piece together. And then I do a little part of it, right? But as soon I got to string it all together and I'm not looking forward to it. Um, but you see what I'm saying? It changes a little bit the way you think, which changes what you do, which changes what happens. So that's why take some time. Start with something that is just pure reinforcing, like the place that you said you wanted a vacation at. Take three minutes, close your eyes, picture yourself there, and enjoy it. Because the first thing that we want to do is reduce your stress, right? Give you a break. You deserve a vacation. Let's take a three-minute mental vacation, right? But as you get better at this, allow it to open up. It can, you can be in a place that you've never been before. Allow yourself to envision things that make you happy. If you find something coming into the vision that is you know, not good, you shove it away and go, this is my time. This is, and in my time, we have anything that we want. Um, so in any case, uh, I'm out of time, but Give yourself this break for three minutes. Write to me and let me know how it worked out for you, will you? I appreciate you so much. We will be back next Wednesday. We have Dr. Grand Pichet again next Wednesday. And plus, we have a big show planned for you. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.